Today is the sixth day of November 2014, and we are back with our dear friend Dr. Alok Pandey to speak today on the soul of India. What a marvelous subject! Actually, this subject leaves me speechless in wonder. There are three things which, uh, very personally to me, I am speaking for myself right now. They leave me speechless. One is when I contemplate on India and its wonders. The second is when I think about Savitri. (laughs) And the third, of course, is the beauty, grace, love, and the wonder of the Divine Mother. These are things which, how much ever we may speak on these uh, issues, uh, these subjects, uh, they we can never exhaust them. Sometime back I had this um, interesting thought which I had thought about penning down and uh, I have not yet, maybe sometime. Mm-hmm. This was after my visit to Australia because that completed a journey to the five continents and the thought that came to my mind was why I still love India. (laughs) So, you know, um, it's an amazing land. It's not a land. Actually, it's uh, like Alice in Wonderland. It's uh, in itself a phenomena. And the closest way I can understand it is just as um, Shubhinda once spoke about the ashram as being a lab, laboratory. So India is a grand old laboratory chosen by the divine for a certain kind of evolutionary experiment. Now when we look at it as a laboratory which is evolving, going through many many layers, then we can understand at one level the unpredictability about India. It's a very unpredictable country at one level and at another level it's a very stable country containing all the desiderata of the past held within making it a amazingly complex many-sided fascinating um, I don't prefer to use the word country but we have to use it for you know uh, want of any other word Um, I would rather say an amazing goddess an amazing mother and a motherland motherland and very few countries have motherland motherland and when we look at uh, Shobindo's work also you know if we take three types of work I mean he did many many things and someday we should speak about Shobindo and the mother's gift to the world many people don't understand they just feel oh there is an ashram and some people <laughs> are engaged in an inner sadhana yes and uh, you know uh, okay he wrote some books they don't realize the kind of gifts that Mother and Shubhinda have given to the world much more than the so-called building up of free hospitals and distributing blankets and you know so many things. Uh, so if we look at one of the three very interesting works that Shubhinda did among many many others and all three uh, come from the root Mother. So the first was awakening the consciousness of the Shakti, the Shakti, the the mother element in India. So we see that around 1905 when Bengal split and there was a movement and Shivindo used it. Um, He said it's a very good thing which has happened, not because it was, it should have happened, it shouldn't have happened. But how even things which are seemingly bad, adverse, unwanted, can become a catalyst for a great change. And actually that was the point of trigger when all India came together as one unit. It's amazing that one split brings unity. That's how God works. And what was the mantra to create that unity which Shurvindu used was Vande Matra. Of course, the Vande Matra mantra, as he said, has been given by, we all know, by Bankim Chand Chattopadhyay in his now famous book Anandamat. But this mantra 
which was lying dormant in the in some ideative uh, field of the nation suddenly came to the forefront and of course Shobindo charged it with his new sense and um, spiritual sense and the spirit infused into it and the whole country woke up subsequently many instrument came and you know that's a different part altogether but this aspect of India as mother is something which is amazing and he awakened that Shakti within India within the people who inhabit it and uh, along with the awakening of this Shakti came a legitimate pride a legitimate sense of self-respect a wish for freedom and so on and so on the second thing which he does again connected to the mother is when he comes to Pondicherry and places the Divine Mother in the forefront of the quest now if we look at the entire parallel of avatars and um, and and the stories of spiritual evolution generally we will see that it is the purusha element which yes. is in the forefront yes. Yes. the feminine element is there in all great traditions it is there but subordinated it's a subdued energy it's a kind of a background you not the prominent color in the forefront but like many things Shurabindu has revolutionized and you know someday we'll speak about that even in terms of yoga one of the things was to put in the forefront the Shakti which stands behind Shiva which stands behind creation which stands behind everyone who has ever accomplished anything worthwhile whether spiritual or otherwise and he brought in the forefront the Shakti the Divine Mother and placed her in our midst that now the yoga has to take this particular route and when he was doing it he was not just doing it for the ashram you know sometimes I feel bit um, uh, of course it amuses me also <laughs> when I read the mother of the Shiorabindu ashram <laughs> of course she is mother of the Shiorabindu ashram but she is much much more and the ashram itself is just a small little something in her vast embrace and so that's where I feel that he gave to the whole practice of yoga this new dynamic turn yoga was not just now for a passive inward orientation which is one aspect of yoga an important aspect no doubt but a power which could reshape our life remold our destinies of individuals and nations and groups so he gave a totally new orientation of yoga yoga leaning on the purusha aspect on the divine as a passive uh, inner presence changed into a yoga which became very dynamic and that we see down the line now all the new yoga movements which came up after that have been very very dynamic people speak about life and yoga and how yoga can engage with every aspect of human life which was not there earlier you know yogis were supposed to be cut off and aloof from the world but this has come whether people like it or not right or wrong uh, the different elements that come in that's a different aspect and finally what Shurabindu did and uh, you know there again we see the mother that not all are fortunate I would say and privileged to have such a wide opening to her with a spirit of self-giving and for them he placed in the hands of the world Savitri so here again we see <laughs> the energy the Shakti the consciousness of the mother embodied in a body of sound word symbol so when we look at India as Shakti as a power which has you know been a which has provided space I would say that the beauty of you know very often when we talk about earth in general and then we come to India you know earth is portrayed as a goddess in Indian thought and she's a strange goddess because gods are supposed to reside in heaven they are supposed to be high up but earth is a goddess which has chosen to take a plunge into the dense layers and cover herself with all kinds of obscurity, denseness, suffer the inertia, suffer the error and ignorance and everything. And there are so many beautiful lines on earth. Again, we see Shorabindo placing the earth uh, where it should be, not an escape from earth, but a change of earth. Exactly. Earth is a goddess who aspires to the divine. And there's so many prayers. Even today, I was reading this prayer of the mother where she speaks this experience where she sees that her physical body is seized and goes through layer and layer and finally unites with the divine. 
And Shivabindu says it's an original Vedic experience where the earth principle unites with the divine. And he says it's a Vedic experience which many of the uh, new uh, Veda scholars would not agree. So the possibility of earth uniting with the divine for which earth chose to clothe herself into a, you know, this kind of an obscure robe. And perhaps that's why the divine loves her so much. I mean, it's amazing that the divine doesn't choose to, you know, descend into heaven or because heaven for him would be a descent <laughs> or other areas. But he chooses to uh, come to earth and not once, but several times. And while I'm sure this has happened all over the world, uh, I for one believe that uh, the truth has manifested in several areas in the world. But the beauty of India is that India has preserved this memory in its atmosphere and in the mind of the race. And of all the nations, divinely sanctioned. Divinely sanctioned. And that's why the immense complexity now when we look at the complexity, we see two types of complexity and that's why people are baffled. The first complexity is if we look at the historical India from a hoary past, it still has in its traditions the stories which go before, you know, the coming of Pralaya and, uh, you know, how many times um, divine incarnations have taken place, the Vedas, the Upanishads and beyond it. And all this is preserved in the Indian thought as a as something active and alive. It is not something which is okay, it's a scripture which is dead. Never. It has always been there as a living tradition. There are people who have not only believed in it, they've given their life to it. So it has always remained dynamic. At the same time, even though it contains those layers, right from a hoary past, which has been there in other places also, as the mother says, you know, just as in India, we had the Vedic case, there was Shaldia where there was, there were equal efforts. And she says, there's a tradition more anterior to the Vedas and the Chaldean. That also she says, but these have been wiped out largely from the memory of the race. But India has preserved these traditions. So at one level, you see that, but we also see that all these traditions, that's and that's one of the beauty of India has always been open to modification and evolutionary growth. And that's how, you know, I look at the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Gita, the Tantra, Puranas and now Sherbindu's Yoga. So there is one line of thought which regards the Vedas as, well, the ultimate and all else that comes is a, you know, outflowing from the Veda in the sense, of course, it's about outflowing, but in the sense that the highest is the Veda and whatever comes later on is something which is uh, subordinate secondary. But there is another way to look at it. The Vedas lay the foundation of all the great truths of existence. And they had a path, they had an approach, their quest was for immortality and they went through the zigzag of the gods one god it's like a relay race who helps them to go to a point another god another god and so on and so forth it's a long long journey now what the upanishads did it took the essence of the vedas but took a different route it completely discarded this approach through the gods and it took a straight route it said no within your heart and you know recently i've been translating this mundak upanishad Amazing, it says from the heart you can approach directly and enter into that shelf, the Brahman. And it says very clearly that there are the gods and the path of the gods. And there is this direct approach which man can have. So they brought in something new, basing on the Vedas. And this is something beautiful about the India, that in each age it reinvents itself. Unlike, you know, even the Vedas are not the last scripture in the sense, it is not a scripture which is written and finished. The Vedas will be rewritten even in the future. And that opens, you know, an amazing aspect of India, which is often goes unrecognized because there are the strongholds of tradition, the Shankaracharyas, etc. And they believe that no, just the right pronunciation, the right, uh, you know, diction and those slokas of the Veda, they are the end. No, the Vedas are only the foundation. It's almost like those who adhere to the Bible. Yes, absolutely. There is a whole yeah. 
way of looking at Indian yes. tradition, yes. which I feel is not healthy. It's otios. It it'll, you know, become too antique. It won't be able to keep pace with the living aspect of India, because within India there is this evolutionary element, and this not just a thought. Look at you know Saint Kabir. He's regarded by everybody as a great saint. So when in one of his, um, you know, he has written many couplets and look, oh, you know, yes, yes. Uh, such amazing poetry. So at one place he speaks about the Vedas in this way, uh, just to put it in the Hindi for the flavor, and then I'll tell you in the English. <laughs> uh, so he's saying, uh, what what really is Veda, and what is um, you know holy places. So. He says, "Jo bolun so ved kahava, jahan pag dharun so tirath." So he says, "Whatever I speak is a Veda. Wherever I step is a holy place. Look at the consciousness." Yes. And Shrivindo reveals it in one of his aphorisms that um, the Vedas are sacred, not because God spoke it, but because the soul heard it. Look at the oh, beauty. Beautiful. So where is the end of the soul's yes. hearing of the marvel and mystery of the divine which is infinite? He is infinite. Which book? You know the Vedas are a document of earth. They are there embedded and he says that also. That the eternal Veda lies secret in the heart of every yes. <laughs> creature and unfolds itself. So there is a Veda which we regard as a book written and finished like the Bible, like the Quran. Mm -hmm. But there is a Veda which is unfolding itself all over this world. Wherever there is a human being looking inside his soul and waiting eagerly to hear a word of God, there the Veda is being written. It is in so many languages. There is no one scripture. There is no one language. And when we understand the Vedas from that point of view, that though they touch the bedrock, they sowed in the mind of the race the possibility of the future and they were like seed thoughts, seed ideas. They were not finished products. You know, that's where the mistake goes. It is a seed and I suppose every great um, personality, uh, divine personality, divine being who has come has sown a seed. Whether it be the yoga of Muhammad or the yoga of Christ, they sowed a wonderful seed in the heart and mind of humanity or the yoga of Buddha or the yoga of Krishna. But now it is up to us. We allow this seed to flower or we just put this seed in a nice little box and just worship it. Now That's where the problem comes. So and yet that has also helped for to preserve the seed for somebody else tomorrow to use it for one's progress. So in India, this has been always allowed. Then after the Upanishads, which drew from the Veda, yet went beyond it. In fact, some of the Upanishads say openly that, well, there is a Vedic way of going about life and, you know, um, going towards an ascent. But there is a still higher way because it will lead you only up to a point. Of course, they are talking about the ritualistic interpretation of the Vedas. Mm -hmm. That's how the Vedas began to degenerate into mere, as Shubhinda says, Karm Kanda, where people were just lighting a fire outside and putting, uh, you know, God knows, lot of ghee and everything into it and <laughs> forgetting the real sense. And the Upanishads had to come in to rescue. Then again, we see that after the Upanishads comes the age of the Gita. Again, these Upanishads with their insistence on discovering the Brahman, the one, the real, the unique, the alone, at some level, post-Upanishadic period, humanity began to think, oh, that alone is and this is not. Whereas, repeatedly, an Upanishad as powerful as the Mundak says, that is this, that is this, that is this. But they forgot it. So they began to become otherworldly. So Gita comes with a strong message of the path of karma. Picking up from the Upanishads the essence but applying it in a much vaster field. No Upanishadic Rishi, though he talks about it in principle, could actually say in a warlike situation that this too is divine. Adore. Now this is where I find the beauty of India that 
its spirituality was not born and finished on the first day it grew and then we see the tradition of the tantras where something else comes and shubhendu says the gita was the first synthesis the vedas were a synthesis then came the synthesis of the gita and then the tantra which brings in an aspect which in the gita is implicit but it stays behind like one of the implicit things is para prakriti jiva bhuta the 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 shakti para prakriti the the higher nature has become the jiva so that's how we are all children of the divine mother in our deepest sense not just because you know we talk about it <laughs> but that's the truth of everybody in the puranas this aspect is brought to the forefront particularly in the tantras you know it's worship of the mother and the mother the shakti aspect and the many forms of shakti and even shiva even the great gods become subservient to her she becomes the path and she integrates this world and all its processes on one side and the supreme vision which the upanishads and the gita spoke about so we see another level of synthesis and yet something is missing and that something is that all these various approaches which india has nurtured and each of them flourished the beauty of india is that sometimes it's amazing that these diverse approaches have flourished together because the bedrock of the vedas permitted it you have to relive the truth so this is a very interesting place which uh, of course i'll be uh, visiting again uh, this time on 12th december it's called ujjain ujjain is a place in india where many of these traditions come together you have for instance uh, mahakal temple the temple dedicated to shiva which contains one of the jyotirlingas of shiva now each of these stories is amazing no you know i am resisting the temptation to get into these stories oh, i don't mind <laughs> well yeah let's <laughs> see but for, yeah but just the overview yeah. so uh, so so there is this aspect of shiva and the jyotirlingas uh, where uh, in a certain sense shiva manifests upon earth in a form of matter but yet this is a matter charged with a special vibration you know this aspect of divine becoming matter is there in many aspects of indian stories there is another story where vishnu becomes matter shaligram which is worshiped in indian tradition so this divine becoming matter is a amazing amazing truth which you know we have forgotten of course uh, earth itself the way earth is worshiped in the vedas and uh, she would go and uh, cry to the supreme these are these are amazing stories but coming to this place and you know the confluence it also contains a shakti peeth which which is a place where uh, sati when shiva's consort dies maybe this story i'll partly touch upon uh, it's a very interesting story sati is the daughter of uh, daksh daksh is one of the prajapatis one of those powers which mother has used the word formatures who have been given charge of maintaining this world they have made certain laws and rules by which the world should be governed now sati is a daughter of daksh he has other daughters also one of them is sati now she falls in love with shiva now daksh has made one rule in his kingdom he says you will worship do yagna everything but shiva is not welcome now why shiva is not welcome that's a different aspect altogether but now sati of all the things one day goes beyond a certain limit which the father has set it's a very symbolic story you know mm-hmm. they don't go beyond it yes, yes. why because he knows shiva's kingdom starts there yeah. and one day she loses way and reaches a place where some people are meditating upon shiva and he's a very interesting character sage dadichi he is you know offers his bones it's a story about transformation first touch about that so you know when she goes there she asks the sage that look i am lost tell me the way and he says something very amazing he says when you know sometimes to be lost on the path is to find the path you know we live within frames and we think it's the path you know that's how we all start our journey <laughs> we make a set of rules everything which are necessary at a certain stage but as we grow further and further gates begin to crash the boundaries begin to become wider and wider 
till we discover that great truth which the mother speaks of in uh, in in prayers that while contemplating upon the ideal attitude which will help people to come closer to you i could not conceive of a rule which was vast and supple enough she start by saying all rules have vanished and then she says we all should make some rules for ourselves but they should not become fixed and rigid they should be at each stage different you know it grow as we grow they should not become artificial that's something again uh, with indian thought and that's why people find it very difficult to understand that on the one side in this land there is so much emphasis on brahmacharya you know continence and on the other side you also have ajanta and elora you also have the sun temple of konark where you see on the top such amazing picture of sages who are meditating and down below in the same temple you have seemingly erotic sculpture now these are facts of india and people often wonder that you know uh, what country is this you know you have the vedas the upanishads and you also have what science kam sutra which is you know he is a sage who has dispassionately observed the the most supposed to be the most carnal of acts the sexual act uh, and again not from a moralistic standpoint the whole edifice of brahmacharya is on a much deeper standpoint but uh, you know just to talk about shiva and sati so sati is in love with shiva sati is the power of truth which has to remain circumscribed within the boundaries of social norms religious rules etc etc but she falls in love with shiva who is eternal who is beyond rules who is infinite you know the story of our own life but they meet and they part they meet and they part they meet and they part sati is not ready and a time comes when sati is caught between prajapati a father mm. prajapati is the old consciousness and shiva the freedom of the infinite and she makes a wrong choice so to say but she discovers it subsequently that well i should have chosen to be with shiva and she throws herself into the fire now shiva comes there is massacre and he beheads prajapati that such a governance which doesn't allow the souls to go into the beyond and then there are people who come and you know pray to shiva that please he is after all one of the formats or there will be chaos this story should be the quotes by the way in, in his earlier writings so they bring in the hari a goat's head and the divine physicians ashwini kumars they suture the goat's head in a hari bari maybe without proper anesthesia and without proper <laughs> operation theater they stitch the head in such a way that the head is stitched the face is towards the hind side you know these are very symbolic story like moses where god shows yeah. the hind side yeah. not the front side or janus that has yeah. the faces yeah that's yeah. right so now when daksha moves forward he moves backward and when he moves backward he moves forward now this is interesting something you know which concerns with our traditional way of looking at india and another way traditional way which is rigid and you know we have to get rid of that so it is there in the story itself so shiva then goes with the body of sati and moves along the quarters and he is besieged with grief what is the grief of shiva amazing how can shiva have grief the only grief that the divine experiences is the grief of the soul which was born to be free and had to end up with such a tragic end this is the grief of the divine that's what you know that's why he drinks the poison that's why we see shubhendra and the mother there is a story 1947 riots when mool shankar was stabbed you know yes, yes, you must have yes, heard this and uh, he was stabbed and he died 47 he was a ashram inmate for three days shubhendra to everybody's visible looks looked so serious you know this is the only thing which makes the divine when people asked uh, shubhendra that you know why does mother look serious uh, he said no she not serious then you know the person insisted he said maybe when she has to come down and take upon herself the grief the burden of the disciples so shiva takes all that upon himself 
and when Vishnu sees this not not good so he destroys the body of Sati in 54 parts and now the places where they pop these parts fall is an amazing story but first to complete the story then Sati's Siva goes into trance after that and Sati is reborn as the daughter of Himalayas as Parvati now she purifies her nature goes beyond the limitations of the old consciousness and becomes the perfect mate for Shiva so nature purified uplifted the mountain tops and the Lord of nature coming together becomes Shiva and Parvati the old nature is not ready so it has to be destroyed now these parts of Sati which are 54 and from that the holy figure 108 comes 108 comes also from many other mm -hmm. stories but it falls on places within India if you really look at it it defines the geography of India similarly every Indian when he was uh, you know in earlier days would pour a glass of water or a mug of water on on the head there were no showers still there are many places there are no showers or even if there are showers the water doesn't come like I experience every day in my house so but he was supposed to recite a sloka naming the seven rivers Ganga right down to from Sindhu to Kaveri again the rivers which unite India now the beauty of Indian culture has been that it has at once integrated the outer and the inner these are the rivers which define the geography or the parts of Shati which define the region but they are also truths of inner life we have to reconstitute with these parts they are like divine documents and Shubindu uses this line in Savitri we have to reconstitute the perfect word now these are like divine documents scattered all over the world because within India a kind of miniature world exists all the prototypes all the representatives from Kashmir to Kanyakumari from Gujarat and Rajasthan right up to the Northeast all types are there and that's why people wonder they also say no the Europeans have been there and somebody was telling me in fact Vladimir when I went to Russia that there was a kind of passage between India and Russia uh, both ways and I won't be surprised people came from Iran, from Greece, from Europe and they integrated with Indian culture so within India there is a miniature world you know perfect place for the divine experiment now in this place Ujjain you have the Shav the Shavites you have the Shakti Peet you also have Sandeepani's ashram where Sri Krishna he was educated <laughs> you also have the dark Tantra and you have actually a Bhairav temple where people offer alcohol to the deity can you imagine that that even alcohol is being offered everything is being offered they offer meat and alcohol and many people receive it as prasad of course I didn't like the energy of the place at all because it, it is a place where you invoke the deity in all its darkness and there too you see the divine mother and that place invariably will have some cobras who will be fed and all that creepy place but you can see that it is an energy which deep inside if you go you will find that essence of the divine that's what Tantra of the left hand side was and Shubhinda used the word a bold attempt yes. it failed because there was no purity it's a very dangerous attempt and now the best part is you know Ujjain also has Shubhinda's relics <laughs> so, oh. so you see this ability to bring diverse strands of evolutionary efforts that's why the Bible becomes a scripture of India you see it's interesting that the uh, the Hindus who have been now Hindus not by a denomination but those have been the mainlanders at some point of time they have no issues they regard Bible as a scripture and Christ as very much a God and as a child I can tell you it's not after reading Shurabindu it's obvious but even as a child in my home 25th of December was celebrated as what mother has subsequently said Bon Noel so it was basically Bada Din the day of light it used to be celebrated in a special way and we used to go and greet you know Christian friends and all these people it was never an issue 
not even an issue that we are different when we are tolerating. This concept doesn't come. And the shopkeepers who have the photo. Absolutely. Pictures of all Absolutely. The there is no issue. And even at some point, even with the Muslims, which is the most difficult to integrate, there was no issue. You know, and a typical Hindu has no issues or people who have been nourished by the soul of India, I would rather say, regardless of Hindu, Muslim or uh, you know, which gives something external, have no issues about going to, let's say, the Gondolin temple of the Sikhs or, you know, Bodhgaya of the Buddha, and they will feel the sense of divinity there. They will go on Eid and, you know, greet a Muslim and feel the sense of divinity. They will not feel, oh, they are different. And I am doing it just out of courtesy. No, it, it's not there. It's not inbuilt. A typical Indian is not programmed for that. Of course, lot of distortions have come. Lot of issues, lot of efforts of the dark forces, particularly see Kashmir, which was another land where mm. Shaiva, Tantra, Vedanta, uh, Shakti, that uh, you know, all these have flourished. And also, it seems as you know, some stories say that Christ and Moses came there. Now, I wouldn't be surprised. Now, is Sufism the one possibility of Islam's reformation? Yes, yes. all these were there, and that's why it has been attacked. And they have done a lot of damage. The one possibility for Islam to change itself was through the Sufism, which again we see that came all the way persecuted from Persia. Where did it find shelter? Yeah. Where does it still thrive? It is India. Yes. Not even in Pakistan. You know, I was surprised. There is this famous singer, uh, Nusrat Fateh Ali. You may have heard about his name. Uh, he has sung a lot of Sufi songs. To start with these Sufis could not sing openly because you know they would be persecuted. Now when he died, he is a world famous, he is a real celebrity. Amazing singer, many of his Sufi songs are simply amazing. One of them is Amir Khusro's, uh, one of my favorites where uh, you know the singer takes the form of a lady, the, the mystic and says Chhap tilak sab chini mose naina milaike. So just as a woman says that you know I have adorned myself with all my jewelry and my best attire to meet you, my beloved. But you took away everything <laughs> just by looking into my eyes. But it applies as much to the soul. We cover ourselves with very good looking, virtuous, pious, holy <laughs> and the divine plucks away. The story of the gopis, Shovinda speaks yeah. of that, that, you know, when the divine plucked my robe of sin, I let it go. But when he plucked at the robe of virtue, I held to it very dearly. So the, you know, he has sung this famous couplet by Amir Khusro, another, you know, Muslim uh, Sufi mystic. Chhap tilak sab chini mose nena milaike. Now this man, when he died, you know, uh, because many people may join. So an od order was passed that no, no, his whole uh, funeral and burial has to be done very, very quietly and, you know, discreetly without many people knowing about it. Can you imagine? And, you know. He talked about Allah, he talked about Islam, he, the Sufi songs refer to Allah very openly. They also refer to Krishna, but that's very few songs. So this kind of a uh, thing in India, but in India, it's a very common sight. I have so many friends who are typically born Hindu, who just love, I am one of them who love Sufi songs. And when they talk about Allah, it's such a, you know, as if I'm taking a wine of the divine. <laughs> So it's because it's programmed like that and here all these things coexist. So it makes the country very, very complex. It's interesting that America, the melting pot yeah, another of melting so many pot. cultures, yeah, yeah, another yeah. melting pot. But could you talk a bit about Mother's Map of India? Yes. <laughs> yeah, there is... Uh, so much and maybe you know we'll have to probably we need uh, a yeah, second, yeah, yeah. A second I just as I said I'm I'll, speechless I'll make a note of it. <laughs> I'm speechless about you know when it comes to India we have yes. not yet touched the fringe no. and um, since you spoke about the map of India so at least this is how what I tell people and I feel there is a certain truth in it because it has come from the my, my very depths that uh, if you want to know India don't go to the metros at all don't go to Bombay, Delhi and Chennai, you'll be, you'll see another metropolis, but unfortunately much worse. <laughs> uh, 
don't even go to the villages where you will meet something of that India, but something like a broken temple, which are, is in ruins. And as Shubhendra said, where still there is some service to the eternal. If somebody can catch it, they may catch it. But mostly one will say, oh, what kind of a place? But two things one must do. Go to the Himalayas. Don't meet, don't, no need to meet any Babaji or any cave or Lama or nothing. Just to go to the Himalayas. And the second is, read the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, particularly the Mahabharata. And if one has done these two things, see Mahabharata is a very secular scripture, though the Gita is part of it. But it's unlike the Ramayana is much more focused on the story of the divine descent. But Mahabharata is the story of a civilization and it's reenacted. That's why it's called as Itihas. It's history. In India, history's notion was very different. Now, when you look at the Mahabharata and you look at the Himalayas, you will see the boundary of India. <laughs> see, <laughs> so mother brought out this truth which is there in the Mahabharata. Now, where did actually Gandhari, the famous uh, wife who blindfolded herself, wife of Dhritarashtra, come from? She came from Gandhar, which is modern Kandahar in Afghanistan. <laughs> She comes from there and gets integrated into Aryavarth. So thus far the kingdom was extending. They were following the same path, the Aryan path. And it was originally called as Aryavarth, where people were following the Aryan way of life, which was not a racial type, but a psychological type. And Shubindo has made it very clear uh, in, in his note on the Arya. When somebody asked, why have you called it Arya? The mm. term which was totally distorted by Hitler. And given a totally different meaning, just like Superman and such things. And then, if you see in the Mahabharata, right up to Manipur and beyond, Arjuna travels all the way and marries, you know, a famous princess who is a warrior princess. And Shurabindu has written a whole beautiful long poem, Ulupi, on this. And, you know, it's a must read. It's about that lady and her love. She loves Arjuna. Arjuna loves her, her and they have a child and then you know she knows that this man will be stifled if he lives here. She wants to. She loves. Who, who wouldn't? But she sets him free. She says you are born for great deeds. Travel where these heroic deeds call you and befit you. It's an amazing story of sacrifice of a woman of her heart's desire for the sake of a greater good. Amazing story. Down south you have in the same story, the Salva kingdom, Madra kingdom, down south. And all these stories come together in Mahabharata, all this whole map. Similarly, when you see the Mahabharata, uh, the Himalaya, running right from top and Kalidas speaks about it and Shirobindo has translated it beautifully. And when I read this part of the translation where he speaks of Himalaya, I think of Shirobindo himself. He says that sitting majestically upon the throne of earth with one hand dipping in this ocean and the other in that ocean. And I just think of Shirobindo sitting on the sofa majestically like the Himalayas. <laughs> so if you look at really the, the reason why she put all these right up to there, up to the Burmese borders, yeah. the Himalayan ranges stretch. It's a special land. You see, even physically the Himalayas came into existence because the whole mass broke free from, you know, if you look at Africa and actually they have that rift valley where the drift took place, it broke away and then it integrated with what is now China and then the mountains came up. Now, I won't be surprised if this land mass was the one which was the seat of the Lemurian kings and even the, you know, oh. uh, those days when, uh, because Shubhendra has written a poem called Rishi, yes, which Lord. describes the ice age and um, we know that there have been ice ages and there have been drift of land masses. So this India is not just a fanciful map she has drawn. What she has drawn is a, is a land mass which carries within its material substance the energy and the memory of great events. So they are bound to come together. It is a common endowment. You can't separate. It is something which has gone through a common experience. 
you may separate it artificially like people from households get separated but are they ever separated you may travel far and wide but still there is a touch of joy when you remember your mother however she may be there is something which is there in the heart even towards a mother who may have been very cruel still there is something which connects however far you may travel so this landmass has been not just as we see it now but a landmass which has preserved these memories and a common psychological and spiritual experience and all that is concentrated in the himalaya this what i feel it is concentrated in the himalaya and one is just travel across i mean i have been very fortunate uh, to travel uh, to all the different sides of himalaya and each place you will see a different contour if you go towards you know the the north western borders you will see barren rugged almost one thinks about buddhist nirvana and in fact both mahayana and hinayana buddhism and uh, tibetan buddhism and tantra buddhist tantra has flourished there it is like that whereas if you go right down to the extreme east you will see those beautiful hills you know you almost fall in love you 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 don't feel that they are they are like nature which is just playing with a lot that's what you see and in the middle you have the difficult himalayas of garhwal you have the you know snow clad peaks you have places which have amazing variety of flora and fauna the herbs and what not and of course uh, as is the way of india to create a cultural unity all kinds of stories you will see in different aspects so india is a land which connected itself through stories you know mother said something very interesting that india is a land of storytellers and so too yeah. we did not create a geographical unity by a map we created through stories through a common psychological endeavor called yoga and you know spiritual through legends and myths in which automatically all these things came together that's how we learned about india and i think that's where the soul of india it extends over all this and when we cut it like the story of sati you cut it and throw it around still she is one yes and that's why there will be this interconnectedness of course how long it will take and what humanity has to go through in the process is a different thing and sometimes as he spoke about in arab israel conflict that brothers who love each other often hate each other yes <laughs> they are passionate in love with each other and she said that both believe in one god <laughs> but the arabs are very passionate the jews are very intellectual and one believes in a very impersonal god and the other believes in a personal god so there are a lot of similarities and because of that there is this fight so this side with pakistan it's because there is such a strong similarity of nature you cut just a little layer and you see that it's very difficult to recognize uh, if you cut across the boundaries of uh, language even language is very similar but cut across that boundary which have been imposed because of rigidly following a way of life and you will find it very difficult to you know um, feel a difference between people on that side of the border and this side and so we started with that terrorist statement which you said mm-hmm. <laughs> they yes. have recognized a truth yes. but it shadow <laughs> when he, when the vaga blast took place and the terrorist said wait this is not enough we are coming on to the other side of the border right. well he is right because they are one <laughs> and the interesting part is they will end up uniting <laughs> they will end up uniting <laughs> see this is how evil ultimately serves the grand purpose of the divine how india and america are beginning to get closer and how as i was speaking the other day america russia and india should come close together for a greater work so something very similar will happen terrorists are going to make life miserable for the pakistanis and the indians indians they have been making miserable for a long time and these brothers have to come back together this will be one way yes. but unfortunately a very bad way there is the sunlit path yes and there is the path dark path but humanity makes a choice
and if we look about Parma and you know that site with the Angkor Wat and all these you know people who had been there, it's very evident that that part is nourished by India's spiritual energy. And maybe as a confederation, it will become part of the all will become part of one subcontinent. It doesn't matter whether one calls it Indian subcontinent or calls it Sark. The mother spoke of that, that now the unity will come as a confederation. And I think this present prime minister has taken a step in that direction. Agreed. So I think... Uh, We've... Uh, uh, I think still another talk Yes, yes, because, you know... We haven't talked about uh, the British in India. We haven't <laughs> talked about the Crips proposal. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> many, so many... So much to do, but... Yes. Uh, but the soul of, of India, which is essentially yes. the great spiritual adventure, uh, which India is about. If we look at yes. India, you know, it's these things don't strike us so much. We forget it. We put it behind as part of the history. Who cares? Greeks came, Britishers came, Mughals came. They stayed on. They became Anglo-Indians, Sufis, uh, you know, Muslims. All these, this took place. And um, Indians are fine with it. The Persians, the Parsis. Oh, yes. Uh, but... The difference is Parsi is mixed so well. You know, there is a story about the Persian king who came to India, to Gujarat, and uh, um, the king said, okay, you can come. India is a land with an open arms. Yeah, but yes, yes. Uh, how are you going to stay here? He simply brought a glass of milk and mixed salt, uh, sugar into it. And the king understood. He said, yes, stay on. So he said, we will mix like sugar, unseen but enriching. Parsis have done that. Definitely. They have enriched the Indian society just like Jews did it you know, in other places. But um, unfortunately, many of the other traditions which came, they got enriched by contact with India. But except for some, they have not contributed much towards enriching it. Or at least it's not yet recognized. Of course, there are a lot of Muslims who have enriched India like anything. Abdul Kalam, the president, is one such example. Yes, yes. And there have been Christians who have really enriched India. Mother Teresa is another example. So it's beautiful that, you know, they get enriched and they enrich. So India is a land like that. So it's a place where spiritual energy is abundant. But you have to cut across the other complexity of India from the surface to the depth. And I use it semi-humorously, maybe a few minutes more. Sure. That, you know, um, just as to understand a human being, you have to get past his outer nature. The color of the skin, the habits, the way he eats and the way he walks and the dress he is wearing. <laughs> Otherwise, we become judgmental and we don't see the soul. So India helps us. It's a place meant for yoga. So the first contact is, oh my God, such dust, heat, I cannot live here. That's what a yogi is meant to do. Equanimity. <laughs> so <laughs> if you can bear with it, you will get in touch with the soul of India. And if you cannot, then obviously you will carry something of India always. But um, it will be difficult to integrate, just like in Ashram. Wonderful life, but very difficult at times uh, outwardly. And despite the fact that mother wanted us to live in every way wonderfully, but still, so India provides that space, if I may use the word, <laughs> for spiritual evolution. The only way you can survive here and be delighted is if you take spiritual evolution as your real goal. Otherwise, always one will be looking here, there, feel unhappy, curse, complain, grumble, try to manipulate systems, but happiness comes and the wonder is revealed when we make spirituality our goal because India is meant to sustain and nourish it. And the moment you look in that direction, you'll see a wealth, an amazing wealth of treasures after treasures. They can never be exhausted. Thank you, Alok. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>